brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Izzy Sutty and today I'm going to be talking to the utterly wonderful Michael Rosen, the poet and author whose latest book, Many Different Kinds of Love, A Story of Life, Death and the NHS, recounts his experience of becoming gravely ill with COVID, encompassing not only his story, but those of the people involved in his recovery. It's also his first Sunday Times bestseller and it's not difficult to see why it's a bestseller. It's completely amazing. I I really loved it. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It was the only book that's made me cry on the first page of reading it. So I just wondered, is that a response that you're getting a lot that people say that it's made them cry? Yes. uh, Some people have said that they've got a bit tearful reading it. And I think uh, it might be for different reasons. I think some people think about the situation they were in if they had COVID. Sometimes it's about their relatives or loved ones. And sometimes it's just the... The the phrase I come up with is social trauma. I think we all went through, perhaps we're still going through it, a sense this was happening to an us, not just a me. And so if you suddenly read a very personal account, then it can, in a way, penetrate that social trauma. So I think people are crying for different reasons. So the thing that made me cry, I think, the most was reading the diary entries from the staff who were looking after you when you were in the coma, because they were just so kind. And you also covered the sense of uncertainty that can be really hard to stomach generally, I think, in life, but especially, you know, in a pandemic. Did you find that you really wanted, did you intend to capture that? Or were you just thinking, I'm going to write about what happened to me? I think when I first started writing, what I was doing was mapping. Because you've got to imagine, if you come off an experience like 40 days in a coma and you're in intensive care, your brain is completely mixed up. It's completely discombobulated. You don't know what it is that you know. It's it's very hard to describe. I've never been in anything like it. And so, really, my very first steps were... What do I remember? So it's sort of finding the stepping stones through this period of lack of consciousness and lack of awareness. So I was writing a little bit down. I was writing down that, did I, was I wearing mittens? Yes, I was. Why was I wearing mittens? Because they said that I might pull my tracheostomy tube out. Was that it? So can you see, I'm sort of struggling. So I write, I'm wearing mittens. So that's the way I wrote. I was I'd go back into the moment, write about it in the moment. And as you say, it's full of uncertainty and full of worry um, and and disbelief, I think, as well. So to start off with, there was no intention other than just to grab each moment, put it down on a piece of paper so that I could understand it. And then this series of fragments then started to form a narrative. And it covers the whole of your journey from... This is a really hard moment, the fact that you've got a family friend who's a GP who, as far as I understand it, happened to have had the instrument for measuring your oxygen levels delivered that morning because she thought she ought to get one at home, who just said, I don't feel right, even though you'd sought help and on the phone they'd said, Michael sounds fine. 
it's kind of almost chance that she came. I think that was just, God, I thought, imagine if she hadn't come. Imagine if something had happened to her and it, it delayed her or something. It's almost too hard to contemplate. But I have to. I have to contemplate the fact that if Emma hadn't got in touch with her, if she hadn't had the oximeter on her, if she hadn't been able to come round, then I'd have gone that night, there's no question, because this thing that we now know of, these SATs levels, um, mine was at a level at which it was beginning to damage my body. I was becoming unconscious without knowing that's what I was doing. It was at 58, as she says in her letter to me, you know, she'd never heard of anybody at that level with them being conscious. So, Yes, I think, isn't that the case, though, with stories, non-fiction or fiction, that some of it are full of people's intentions? You know, they're intending to do something, they're motivated to do something, or even, like in Shakespeare, say, they're plotting to do things. And then other things genuinely happen by chance. I mean, it make a ridiculous comparison, but that's what happens in Romeo and Juliet, isn't it? That we're meant to feel, oh, if only he hadn't done this, or if only she hadn't done that. Well, these things happen in real life, don't they? And it's exactly what happened to me. I can dare myself to think of these uh, these other possibilities as you just put them in front of me, but that means that that's the end of the story as far as I'm concerned. I've died. Um, so the fact I live is because those ducks were all in a row and she came and she rang the hospital and said, get in there quick, buddy. And I said, no, I can't. Yes, bump yourself down the stairs. Um, and I can remember her saying that and me sort of resisting it and not wanting to go because the only comfort I could find at the time was lying very, very still in bed, uh, which, of course, was the way I would have gone. Is it difficult to think about what would have happened? And was it difficult to revisit the memories of the harder times? There were times when I came home and I was feeling very fragile and I think probably with quite a lot of the drugs still in me, I mean, it, that's all a bit of a mystery, but it's quite clear that when we come off a of something like intensive care, you are very fragile. And so if I contemplated any of this stuff, I did well up. I did. I, I wasn't able to cope. I mean, now it, it feels like, well, there's a, an idea, isn't there, in stories that stories are a way of laughing at death that you kind of put death away for a bit while you read the story and get engaged with it. And in a way, it's sort of getting your own back or getting one up on death. So I, I guess that's how I feel about it now. I mean, it's, it's already, thankfully, become a, a bit of a time ago. So, I, you know, I first got ill in March 2020. And so I can see a sort of grim cackling, I think. Ha, 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 I nearly died, but I didn't. Ha, ha, ha. So it's it's a different feeling now. But if you were talking to me in July 2020, you'd go, oh, he's in a bit of a rough way, isn't he? Uh, have a hanky, Michael. So it, it has changed. And do you think writing the book has helped you to accept, I suppose, what, what happened? Like, would you recommend it to someone who'd been through a similar thing? Hey, if you write it down, it might help you to process the fact that life is uncertain and these things can just happen. Yes. For me, writing is actually a way of having a conversation with yourself. That if you write down things in a way that are truthful to the moment that is bothering you. Now, the technique is, I shouldn't really call it a technique, but the way that I do it is I see myself as unfolding 
something that happened, but doing it as if it's happening now. So I say, a nurse comes to my bedside. So I put it in the present. She comes to my bedside. And then I don't worry about whether it makes sense in the way prose makes sense, with full of becauses and moreovers and notwithstandings and all that sort of stuff. It can be very brief. And sometimes it doesn't have to have whole sentences. So it, it can just be little fragments. And when I get to the end of one fragment, then I just start a new line. And I'd recommend that to everybody because it's very, very simple once you get there and you don't have to be burdened by the kind of things we were told at school, that you had to write a sentence with a finite verb and that if you put in a subordinate clause, then this was good style. And uh, if you put the subordinate clause before the main clause, all that stuff, you know, we get burdened by this and it gets in the way of you writing so that it feels like it felt. And if you want to deal with difficult stuff, then you do have to have a conversation with yourself about how it felt. One way is obviously to see somebody and talk to them. But the blank piece of paper is a good friend. It doesn't answer you back. It doesn't mock you. It doesn't get angry with you. You can write anything on it and you're the only judge of it. If you get it wrong, you can chuck it away and say, I'm going to try again to get it right. Or you can scribble things out or add things. And so I'd say it's incredible. It's, it's helped me enormously because... Some of the stuff that's been difficult is the dislocation and the uncertainty of it all. And others, as we've just talked about, is the sense of it, it was a close scrape. And, you know, life is always just on the edge of death anyway. You know, we can walk out of this building right now and, you know, walk under a bus or indeed get an infection, as we discovered with COVID. So life is very precarious. And, um, you know, we have to find a way to deal with that. One way is just to ignore it and just carry on and sit down and have your fish and chips and not think about it. But just occasionally, it's worth thinking about. And again, this kind of writing helps with that. And why do you think it is worth thinking about? Do you think it ultimately enriches your life if you face that stuff? Because you, you kind of see more about what's happened. I think one way or another in life, you do have to think about you know, the really big stuff, like what is the purpose of life and what is death? And some people, you know, they, in a sense, can outsource it. They can outsource it to religion. And that's absolutely fine. It's an explanation. It's a story. It's a, a place where you can find comfort. You can feel there is a purpose. There is something beyond just my life. And you can go every week if that's what you want to do or every day if necessary and feel a sense of community through all that. And that's fine, but that's not my way. So I'm an atheist. So I have to find reasons for living and a sense of what is life and what is death. And I have to find that from other places. So, I mean, as it happens, I think life is utterly purposeless. That doesn't mean it's bad, but it doesn't have a purpose. So therefore, you make life purposeful for yourself while you're alive. So I know that's a paradox, but that's how I see it. And also, writing and thinking about this stuff is actually part of the purpose. But in terms of why in the universe, I'd say, well, there is none. But that's fine. That's just the very odd 
absurd thing about what has been created out of the chemicals and processes of the universe. But, I, you know, we don't have to think about these things every day or even every month, maybe only once a year or maybe for some people once every 10 years. You know, maybe we're watching David Attenborough on the telly and it suddenly occurs to, why does the weaver bird weave a nest? You know, that's fine. And um, and then we don't have to think about it again. We can then get on with life and, you know, do our baby's nappies and... Um, you know, go to work and, and wonder why the car's broken down. We don't, we don't have to think about that big stuff very often. When I was reading it, I felt like I was in the hospital and like I was... It, the way that you write, there are no barriers between you and the reader and that's really unusual. It's so pure. We're going to go to the first object. We asked you to bring a few things to talk to us about, which we always do on the Penguin podcast. And I thought we might start with something that appears in one of your books, if you'd like to tell us about that, please. Yes. Well, I go into schools and I perform my poems. And then, actually, it's a bit like remembering something that Billy Connolly said, was that, uh, you know, he was a folk singer and then he would ad-lib his way into his songs. And then the ad-libs got longer and longer and then they became, actually, fact, he sang less and less and then it all became stand-up. Well, something a bit like that's happened to me, that I do my poems and then I tell stories. And I started telling story about getting up in the middle of the night to go and get some chocolate cake, as my mum used to say, that if there was any chocolate cake left over at the end of the day, I could take some to school tomorrow. And so I started telling the children that and telling them about... And I suddenly found myself acting it out and doing it more and more. And to cut a long story short, it, it's sort of become a kind of cult poem amongst under... 10-year-olds. Well, my daughter, I've, you know, I've told you before we started this interview that my daughter knows it off by heart. Yes, well, that's lovely. It's become this thing. And now what's happened is that when I turn up and do shows, so I was on at the Queen Elizabeth Hall last week. And as I was signing books, children would come up and there was a little silver packet. And inside was a bit of chocolate cake. So I went home with a little stack of bits of chocolate cake. And it's lovely. There's some whole thing going on between me and children and parents, that is about, I don't know, it seemed like a sort of exchange of kindnesses that I do the show and they give me bits of chocolate cake. <laughs> Certainly my own children think it's brilliant because I come home with bits of chocolate cake, you know, what's better than that? <laughs> um, so it's, that's become a very sort of emblematic object, if you like. It's become something that means more than it is. It's become something to do with the fact that I've been performing in schools since oh, wow, the 70s. And it's a vital part of my life that uh, I've reached children and children have reached me through poems and stories. So that openness and that sense of connection to the spontaneity that you talked about in terms of, you know, thinking I'm wearing mittens, just taking yourself back there, not worrying about where it might lead. To me, that's the same thing you being on stage that very first time thinking well I've done one poem oh remember when I used to have chocolate cake then you start talking about it and I think those things catch light because you're connected to the memory and you just think I might only say one sentence about the chocolate cake and then I might move on but it's grown organically into this thing. That's the nice thing about audience that if you want to and you enjoy that then you you find yourself building things so I I started another little routine that I do. It started because nearly always when I say, are there any questions, one child will say, how old are you? Now, of course, your immediate 
reaction is my immediate reaction is to immediately tell the truth. So it's been going on for years. You know, I'm 65, and I'm, I'm 70. And then I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to actually say something completely absurd? And so I started saying, yes, it's a good question because I was born in the Stone Age. So I'm actually very, very old. And then I started saying about how they've in schools they've got these kind of a freeze up, you know, they've got a wall chart and, you know, right at the beginning is the Stone Age. Well, that's when I was alive, you see, and all we had was stones and rocks. That's all we had, you know, we sat on rocks, we ate rocks, had pebbles and gravel, we had a bit of that. And then I just started ad living about it. Now it's a whole routine I do about living in the Stone Age and then getting to the end of the Stone Age, which I tell them is like, like on the wall chart, there's a line, it says Stone Age and the next age. And I say a line came down and that was the end of the Stone Age, you see. So it's quite nice. <laughs> and then afterwards, there'll be one child will come up and say, were you really alive in the Stone Age? And I have to say, no, that, that's, that's actually, that's called exaggeration or hyperbole. And they'll have a lot of fun with the word hyperbole and how it looks like hyperbole, which is different from the Super Bowl. Anyway, so <laughs> I've got, that's, that's where I go with all that. Yes, that's, that's part of how I live and work. Yeah. We're talking about your parents there, your mum saying about the chocolate cake. In the book, you talk about your parents a little bit about your mother's illness and her death. And I loved it when you said that your father raved about old foreign authors like they were his friends. There's so much in that sentence. Um, and it reminded me of, of my mum, to be honest. Um, when you started writing this book, did you know it would contain these other, albeit slightly small kind of tidbits of other bits of your life? I think if you make yourself raw, if what you do is do that thing I talk about, which is trying to write to make it feel like it felt, then what happens is you go into the nitty gritty of seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, tasting, the senses. And then you also go into what was I thinking of? What was I dreaming of? And that's when these seemingly random bits and pieces start happening. So when the very first time the nurses and physios came to me and tried to get me to stand up and I looked down at my legs and I saw these thin, skinny, shaking white legs, I immediately thought of my dear old dad and in his last days and his skinny white legs. And so it was, you know, I don't have to spell it out, but it was a touch of death, you see, that I looked at my legs and thought they were, you know, a very old man's legs. And then of course, I was lying there and thinking about, well, had I nearly died? And I wanted the nurses or doctors or Emma on the phone, because she wasn't allowed in because of COVID restrictions and so on, to tell me, had I nearly died? And then the moment I was doing that, I was thinking, well, I know a bit about death, don't I? I know about my mum and my dad and my son who died. And so I would lie in bed sort of thinking about what do I know about it? Because... I guess we sort of live in a culture where we don't talk about knowing about death. We talk about people we've known who've gone. We might think about ourselves and how that'll pan out, but we don't sort of think about death as a, a sort of subject that you can have knowledge about. And so as it happens, I lay in bed thinking, well, what do I know about this thing that I nearly did? And so that's where Eddie, it's my son, my mum and dad kind of came in to the the other stuff is uh, the senses, but this stuff is the dreaming, thinking, reverie, daydreaming stuff. So 
to my mind, they, they mingle. In fact, when I do workshops with children, I quite often get them to think about the stuff that you can see and hear and touch and so on, and then say, but what about dreaming? And what about thinking? And then it's quite interesting to see the quality of what they write, yeah. how it changes. Yes. I can, I can really imagine that. It's, dreaming, we, we almost don't give it enough weight. People are quite quick to dismiss their dreams, aren't they? Well, they became crucial because in the terms that the medics told me was that my brain had been stuffed full of mind-changing drugs. That was the phrase they used. I remember lying in bed thinking, really? Has my mind been changed? What did they give me? You know, because they didn't actually tell me the names of what it was that they'd fed me. And they did warn me that I would uh, hallucinate and become delirious and have very painful and difficult dreams and maybe even get paranoid and want to be quite violent because some of the people who come off intensive care, they are like that. But I kept having these kind of wild sort of hippie yellow submarine type dreams. You know, one of them which I've written about is this German Christmas party. You know, I mean, it, I mean, how weird. I mean, I've, I don't think, no, I've never been to a German Christmas party as such. And there I was sitting out of doors in the garden with a big blanket round my legs, knowing that I couldn't move. And German folks came out to me saying, in Germany, we eat Wasbieren, totally made up word. So it's great. My dream made this up. And what we do, he said, is we throw the berries into the air and when they, they'll explode and then we sing. And so we throw them into the air and they go, Pew! and I saw these berries beautifully exploding against the night sky. And then Everybody sitting round going, Stille Nacht, Heiliger, pew, pew, like this. And, um, well, it's actually great. So what it's now, I mean, I do these shows for children and obviously people, they do want to slightly touch on this but not do it in a way that scares children. So I've started telling them and I get them all to join in while we all go, pew, pew, Stille Nacht. So anyway, they learn three German words, Stille Heiliger Nacht. So, uh, yeah, quite weird, but also a word that isn't a word, Vaspian. So, um, totally bizarre. So, luckily, I was spared the terrible dreams. I heard, for example, better be nameless, but that there was someone else who had been in the ward before COVID, and he had a terrible dream where he thought the clock on the wall was coming off the wall and coming onto his bed and trying to strangle him. And my dad, I know, who wasn't in intensive care, but I know they gave him certain substances, as they do. And I was sitting next to him in the ward, and he said, Michael, would you... Uh, there's a big fly on the wall, and there wasn't. And he said, would you kill... The, Michael, would you just get rid of the fly? I said, yeah. And in the end, I just pretended to. But it was because of the stuff they give you in there, you start having strange... Well, it's a form of delirium, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, my dad died 10 years ago, and I remember him... There was a picture of a flower at the end of his bed, and... He said something like, those petals, they, they keep curling. So he, they, it was a real thing, but he could see it moving. Yeah. And I think he must have gazed at that. You must look at the walls so often, mustn't you, when you're just... Yeah, yeah, and I would look at my toes. Sorry, it's going to get a bit gruesome now. So one of the effects of COVID is that um, you get blood clots and hemorrhages and so on. And uh, I lost my toenails, and in place was just red, let me put it that way. And so I would lie in bed looking at my toenails going, didn't I used to have toenails? And I'm sure I, yeah, no, I did have big, I had nails on my big toes. And I'd look at them and of course I couldn't reach them because I couldn't move. 
So I just used to sit there twiddling my toes and looking at them, wondering why they were red. And as it happens, nobody did tell me. I mean, now I know but what the medical explanation for it is. But at the time, I just stared longingly and bewilderingly at my red toes. Yes. They're so caught up with the big stuff, aren't they? Like getting you to walk again. Yes. They just wouldn't think. Or like you say about your eye that you kept saying, there's something wrong with my eye. And they kept going, oh, we don't know about that. We need to... Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, it sounds like I'm doing down all these people who saved my life at least two, three, possibly four times. And, you know, not only are they utterly preoccupied with the big stuff with you, they're utterly preoccupied with the huge pressure on the NHS at the time with, goodness knows, I mean, my ward, the intensive care ward, it was equipped for 11 people, but there were 24 of us in there. It's supposed to be one nurse with you all the time, 24 hours a day. Well, you know, there were times when nurses had to rush from patient to patient because of the terrible pressure they were under. So, you know, I mean, as it happens, I wasn't moaning about my nails, I should think. But, you know, later, the pressure on them and the, it was just unbelievable. You know, the, the NHS is understaffed. It's even more understaffed. There were people ill, so it's even more understaffed. And yet still they were saving our lives. I mean, it is a miracle. That's what comes out of the book. I mean, it doesn't feel like you're going they messed up in any way you're so full of compassion for them and it's completely understandable that the smaller less urgent things like there's something wrong with my eye did I used to have toenails do fall by the wayside when not only are they trying to help you with the bigger things they're trying to help everyone with the bigger things as you say yes there's also something kind of comical and basic there's one bit that I write about again so excuse me if you're a bit squeamish but when they told me in the rehab hospital that I had these blood clots in my pulmonary artery, the moment I thought of clots, I thought of scabs, because they are essentially the same thing. The process by which you scab up when you have a cut is the same as getting a blood clot. So I suddenly thought that I had scabs in my pulmonary arteries, and I said, should I be worried about this? And the wonderful Mr. Ahmed, he said, oh, no, no, you'll probably digest them. And then... What I thought at that moment, and I, I do excuse me, but I thought of how when we were kids and went on camping holidays, you know, you can imagine sort of grotty little boys mucking around on campsites and getting cut and then getting scabs. Well, what did we used to do? Here it comes. We used to pick the scabs and eat them. So when Mr. Ahmed said that, the first image that came into my mind was just that, of the idea that I was actually eating the blood clots in my lungs. Now, at one level, of course, that's all absurd and slightly kind of grotesque. But at the same time, there's a thing, and now excuse me for sounding kind of heroic here, is that there's this incredible moment in King Lear where King Lear realises when he's with poor Tom, who isn't really poor Tom, and with the fool, that all they have are their bodies. It's all they've got. So all the finery and the incredible grandeur of being King Lear have all fallen away from him and they're just... There, poor Tom's a cold, says poor Tom, who isn't really poor Tom. And he says, poor Tom's a cold, and he says, we're just poor forked creatures. And there's a way, when you have this kind of illness, that you are reduced to this naked body. After all, you've just got a gown on, so you have your body and you can't move much, and so every little bit of you, you know, all the burping and farting and, you know, how you feel... Like, for example, my moobs disappeared because I'd lost so much weight. And I remember feeling my chest and thinking, my God, I could play tunes on my ribs here. You know, or I'd feel a, a bone that I didn't think I had. 
And I found myself thinking that's what Shakespeare was getting at with King Lear, that there is a way in which you can have all the apparatus of life and society that gives you, whether it's your clothes or the fact that you've got a job and that you're called Mr. This or Dr. That or Professor This. But actually, when you're ill, it all comes down to that basic biology. So that was something else I found myself kind of both amused and absorbed by as I wrote this. So there's one little bit about finding a bump in the middle of my chest, which at one level is just completely trivial and absurd. But at the same time, I did want to connect with that idea that whatever happens, you are ultimately a biological entity that we call the human body. And that that is very much impressed upon you when you're in hospital. Well, that brings us on very nicely to the next object, um, which is something that changed you. Indeed. Well, it's kind of obvious. It's a ventilator. So I didn't know what a ventilator was before I went into hospital, and I didn't know what it was until Emma explained it, what it was after I came out. So to be quite brutal about it, I was sedated so that a tube could be put down my throat and into my lung in order to control the amount of oxygen I got to start off with to get enough in there at a rate, but also then to control it. So it's quite a brutal procedure and they can only do it if you are sedated because otherwise you'll cough and try and wrench it out as, as it's the instinctive reaction. But it saved my life. If I hadn't had the ventilator, I'd have gone. I'd have gone that night or, you know, soon after because I couldn't get enough oxygen into the tissues, into my body. So that's a kind of very obvious mechanical thing. I could think of all sorts of mystical things and not so mystical things. I could think of an incredible holiday in France and all sorts of things. But I just somehow felt when you asked me that question, I really owe it to the NHS and to all the nurses and doctors to that object that they stuffed down my throat that has enabled me to live. So um, it's for them, really. Is it important to you now to understand how a ventilator works to make sense of what happened to you? Or do you concentrate more on the psychological implications of what happened? I personally find it really helpful to know and try and understand as much of the science as I can. I hit the ceiling every now and then, well, quite often, when they start talking about metabolic rates or stuff like that. But I find it very helpful. So earlier I was talking to one of the nurses who was looking after me and I was saying, well, what was the drug that you gave me and what, what, what does that do? And, and I wanted to know. You know, I, I don't like the idea that there's a sort of mystical quality about it because it isn't, it isn't. They're, what they're doing is working off science. Now, I can accept that there's some of the science I, I don't understand, but if I can understand it, and as I say, this this actually applied also to the death of my son. When they came to me and said, he's died of meningitis, he's died of meningococcal septicemia, I wanted to know what all those words meant. If they, I didn't want it to be a spooky word, meningitis, you know, like a like Godzilla or something. I wanted to know what meningitis is. Is it a virus or is it a bacterium? Which is it? And then where? how do we get it? And then if they say it was septicemia, well, how did it get from there to there? Some people would just really not want to know that. But in my case, I do. And one of the ways it helps me is that it makes me feel part of the human race, that if it was a bacterium that killed my son, then that's a bacterium that we as a human race live with. 
if it's a virus, COVID is a virus and that we live with it and I was saved by this process, then I feel part of what medical science has done to save people who are in an emergency and need this kind of help. So I don't feel like this single, isolated, me, ego, I, myself, person. I'm part of a whole society or indeed the whole human race that's got to this point. So I find that very comforting. I can understand other people might not like that, but for me, it, it really helps, yeah. There's a bit where you talk about the virus as a wicked hedgehog and there's a brilliant um, picture of it as well. And I really identified with that bit because at one point in the pandemic, I was just so angry with COVID as if COVID was this evil entity that wanted to cause us harm. And I think that's probably quite a natural reaction, isn't it? As we try to make sense of why our lives are being changed so much, let alone if you're as ill as you were. How do you make sense of COVID itself now? I, I think I'm somebody who can quite easily sit with two things quite different but parallel in my mind, that on the one hand it is these things that medical textbooks describe and this weird thing of a virus being halfway between life and inanimate object but somehow can reproduce itself or has to have a host in order to do it, all, all these things. They write about viruses and I'll read about that. And at the same time that we can create mythological creatures because mythological creatures when we've made them, dragons or whatever they might be, they're to deal with our fears. I mean, it's very clear from, say, the great old English epic poem Beowulf. There they were, these folks sitting in their mead halls, scared out of their pants by the night and noises and, well, they would scare each other because they could kill each other with axes and all the rest of it. And they created this this monster out there called Grendel, an even bigger monster at the bottom of a pond called Grendel's mother. And in a way, it's fear itself. And they've created this myth. Well, I, I quite like the idea that on the one hand, you can sit there very rationally and read about what a virus is and how COVID is a branch of the SARS and all this sort of stuff. And on the other hand, what is it? It's Well, it is. It's a wicked hedgehog. Look at it. You can see the picture of it. It's uh, yeah, under the electron microscope. It's this sort of sphere with all these little sticky things coming out of it. And it is wicked because, you know, it's doing these naughty things. But then, of course, you have to slap yourself. Here's me slapping myself. Um... You anthropomorphise it, and it helps. It's difficult to say why, but there must be in the whole history of phantomology, this is what we do. We make phantoms and spectres out of the things that bother us. And then it becomes a bit funny for half a second. Wicked hedgehog. It's sort of a, another way to deal with it. So I find these two things can coexist quite happily, even though the one thing in theory is um, the destruction of the other. You know, science destroys mythology, and mythology... Uh, ruin science. So I'm quite happy to live with both. The illustrations by Chris Riddell are amazing and some of them are really ominous. And the one where you're, before you're in the coma, the beginning of the coma chapter, you're sort of falling into a black hole. At what stage does he get involved? Is he a friend? Do you give him an early draft or does it come much later? Um, he's a friend and a colleague and we've worked together. He does something quite outrageous. When we're on stage together, I'm in the middle of performing and he's usually just out of my sight behind me and he starts drawing pictures and I notice the children in the audience start laughing but not at my gags 
they're laughing at his drawing. So I always say, you know, he's outrageous. He's a terrible person uh, <laughs> and he shouldn't be allowed. And it's absolutely hysterical. I mean, the pictures of me, they are so funny. I mean, in this book, they're slightly less funny. But the pictures he does of me when we're in performance, I must say, I, I absolutely adore them. So I think, yes, the interesting thing with Chris is that, uh, yeah, we sent away, he had some poems, then he had some more then he had a sense of where the book's going. So he got it, I think, in sort of phases. And then he ad-libbed, basically. He ad-libbed onto the page. He has, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, he's got a gothic style. In fact, he's created a very famous teenage book about a goth girl. But I think he's got a gothic style. He reminds me of the French engraver, Gustave Doré. That's his style. And I quite like the the way that you can reach into the page and feel it. So it's it's got a three-dimensional quality and also he just does a, a, a thing that distorts it according to the character. I mean, later you'd call that expressionism, but I'll stick with the Gothic for the moment. And the picture that you describe, I'd, I have looked at a lot because he's captured not the sense I had at the time, but the sense that I feel about it now, that I was falling and falling and I'd have gone on falling until I'd fallen into nothing and he's invented that he's made a little myth hasn't he he's invented the idea that you know I wasn't if you say slipping away that's another metaphor but he's invented a sort of metaphorical way to grasp the fact that I was dying and he's done that beautifully through a form of gothic art fantastic yeah it's really it really adds to to the book well, let's move on to your favourite childhood book. I think you've got two, haven't you? I've one cheated, one. That's yes. all right. That's definitely allowed. Right from the beginning, my mum reading to me, sitting by the side of my bed in our bedroom, I can just see it, and she's reading me Squirrel Nutkin by Beatrix Potter. And I think it's a genius story because on the one hand, you identify with Squirrel Nutkin because he's mischievous and he takes the mickey out of the owl. But at the same time, you become terrified because the owl pins Squirrel Nutkin down and you have a sense that if the owl wanted to, the owl could finish him off. So there's a wonderful sense of danger. I mean, people cosify Beatrix Potter, yes. but there's often a lot of terror. You only have to think of Tom Kitten, you know, how he was going to be rolled up in a pastry and cooked. You know, there's nothing... Um, so cosy and sentimental. I mean, and even Peter Rabbit. I mean, the, you know, obviously, oh, lovely little blue coat, Peter Rabbit scampering about. But the reason why he's scampering about is because he's desperately afraid of Mr. McGregor. You know, these these stories at the child's level are quite often about fear and danger, which is great. You know, that's one of the things that books can do for us. They can take us to fear and danger, speculate with our vulnerability, and in children's books mostly, save us. You know, we get back... And we're safe. Though if you look at the last picture in Peter Rabbit, you know, he hasn't got his jacket. And in the case of Squirrel Nutkin, he's lost a bit of his tail. And so there's a, a little penalty to pay. I was absolutely, no, I, I was obsessed with it and loved staring at the pictures of them rowing on the little raft across to the island and thinking, I want to do that. And the little packages they make up, of the, they're rolling up little goodies with honey and leaves. And uh, again, I, I think there's quite a strong feeling when you read a children's book when you're very young uh, that you want to be in it or with it. And you, it creates a sense of yearning. Quite often we think of the pleasure of children's books or sometimes the sadness or the pain. 
But there's another feeling that's very powerful for me. It was a sense of yearning. I read a lot of historical fiction when I was about 10, 11, and 12, and I yearned to be in Elizabethan times. And if there was a, my mum or dad would say, oh, well, here's a good book. It's about Victorian times. No, I don't, I don't want Victorian times. I want to be in Elizabethan times. And I decided that's what I wanted to yearn to be there. So yearning, I think, is very important. So I did yearn to be Squirrel Nutkin, jumps about in trees. That was pretty good. And, and also get up to what he got up to. And then the other book is a little bit older. There was a translation of the German folk stories of the character Till Eulenspiegel. People know of Till Eulenspiegel through the, I think it's by Strauss. It the, is by Strauss, yes. Yeah, the merry pranks of Till Eulenspiegel. And people, in, usually in England or Britain, they don't know that there's this wonderful story cycle that's ever so well known in Germany. It's a bit like Robin Hood, that we sort of know about Robin Hood in this country, but... Well, in Germany, they all know Till Eulenspiegel, and there was a lovely translation of it when I was a kiddie with beautiful, I'm not quite sure they are, I think they're photographs of stills of them having created little stage, little puppetry stage scenes of the stories. And it's a, it's a lovely edition, came out in 1948, and I adored these stories. And if I might boast for a moment, I did my own version of them a few years ago, changed his name from Eulenspiegel to a sort of rough English translation, called him Owly Glass. And I just think they're magical trickster stories. Absolutely love them. When you were young and you started writing, did you imagine people reading it or were you writing just for yourself? I think to start off with, I thought I wanted to write the kind of stuff that I liked reading. So one moment I'd try and write like D.H. Lawrence's poem, Snake and man and bat and those sorts of things, you know, and I'd write about moth. And I thought I'd write a D.H. Lawrence poem about moth. And then I came across maybe, I don't know, James Joyce portrayed the artist as a young man writing in a kind of child's voice about childhood. I thought, oh, I could have a go at that. So at that moment, I was James Joyce. And then I was shown the poems of uh, Carl Sandburg, American poet, and he would like write it almost as if he was an anthropologist and recording things about the way children talked and so on. That was one of his styles of writing. And I thought, oh, I could do that. So then I became Carl Sandburg. So there's, a, there's quite a lot of trying on other people's shoes, I think, to start off with. And I, I don't know, I still do it. I mean, I was watching a TED Talk the other day, a wonderful, wonderful African-American woman talking about her language and how she can speak three languages. I am articulate, she says. I am articulate. And I thought, oh, yeah, well, in a way... I've got some languages. We went to Germany when I was 10 and my mum sat there and she looked up and she said, I can understand everything they're saying. And I thought, no, she can't. Mum doesn't speak German. Our dad speaks German because he was in Germany at the end of the war in the occupying army. And she said, yeah, because the first language I spoke was Yiddish and Yiddish is quite like German. So I said, it was your first language, was it? I knew she said these funny words, as I called them, so she'd say something. She'd never called a tea towel a tea towel. It was always called the schmutter. But I thought it was just an English word. You know, she'd say, well, pass me the schmutter, Michael. And I'd only find out it wasn't an English word when I'd go to school. And I'd say, well, you know when you're drying up with the schmutter? And my friends would go, what? With the schmutter? What's the schmutter? Well, it's the drying up closet. No, 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 that's called a tea towel. Is it? And then I'd go home and go, Mum... My friends at school, they, they say it's called a tea towel. And mum said, no, it's a schmatter. 
And then there'd be a lot of these words. There'd be like she'd walk into me and my brother's bedroom and she'd say, this place is a mission monk. And you say, what's a mission monk? And she'd say, well, this place. And then walk out. And so you had to sort of, <laughs> and there was another one she did was she'd say, now listen, Michael, you don't want to be a schloch. I'd say, what's a schloch? And she'd say, well, the thing you don't want to be. So I knew there was this stuff. But then she suddenly said that she spoke it all. And I thought, well, where is it? And so I wrote a poem only the other day, like, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you speak this language? And it's, it was inspired by this wonderful woman talking about her three languages. And I'm sort of berating my mum, unfairly, of course, as to why she didn't pass on this language, why I've only got these sort of jokey fragments. And also the fact she used to <laughs> stop my dad swearing in Yiddish. So he'd go, don't, mum would dive in on, don't say that thing. And we'd say, what did he say? What did he say? And she'd say, don't tell them. Don't tell them, Harold. Don't tell them. And he was banned from telling us these terrible things. So he would then say, maybe if I was going up the dump or something with him, you know, because he was always exploring old dumps. Oh, was he? Oh, yeah, yeah. He loved exploring old dumps. I loved going with him, you see. And then he'd say, I'd say to him, you know that thing you said? You know that thing? <laughs> I can't say. Was it? What does it mean? He said, well, I don't tell your mother. Don't tell your mother. But it means... I've got you in my hole. What? <laughs> anyway, I never asked him what hole or anyway, but anyway, I won't go on. But you can hear it's quite disgusting. And he'd have these and you can see why my mum told him not to say it, you know. I don't even know what it means. Does it mean? Anyway, never mind, we won't speculate. And so I've written this piece, which is really a sort of fun berating of my mother for not having taught me how to speak Yiddish. I know the words, but I can't speak it. Um, well, let's move on to your next object. It's something from your desk. Mm. Well, sitting on my desk are some Duplo figures. So people who are expert in Lego may not know that there's a kind of intermediary stage for sort of two, three, four-year-olds, five-year-olds. They're bigger bits of Lego and they're called Duplo. And I loved Duplo. I'm not very good with Lego. It's a bit too small for my great big hands. And I loved the whole Duplo phase because you've got these great big pieces that you can sort of pull apart and build a house with about 20 pieces and so on. And then these figures that are beautifully stylized. And one of them I told my kids was Aretha Franklin. And I said, that is Aretha Franklin. And they said, who's Aretha Franklin? And so I played them, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. You make me feel like a natural woman, you know. And I said, that's Aretha Franklin. I'm not quite sure what a four-year-old made of that, whether they thought somehow or other that little plastic figure actually produced the incredible sound that is Aretha Franklin. But anyway, I'm very fond of Aretha sitting on my desk. It reminds me of uh, my kids when they were younger. And so it, it means a lot to me. I think actually also in that little group, there are some other people. Yes, there are. But Aretha Franklin's the one that uh, I really remember. And so I move her around the desk, actually. She's sometimes by a little rack where I keep my pens and other times she's next to the microphone for my uh, Zoom calls, you know. So she moves around the desk and, uh, yes, her favourite one she likes singing to me is You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. I'm not quite sure why she likes to sing that to me, but anyway. Is... You make me... No, I won't do it. It's all right. <laughs> That's so great. Um, do you always write at your desk? Could you write anywhere? I do write anywhere. I write on buses. I, I write, yeah, sorry, I don't mean I write on the bus, but yeah, when, I, <laughs> when I'm on a bus. Yes, I do. I, I can write anywhere. If there's anything continuous, 
continuous prose of any sort, then I do need a whole spell of concentration and my desk in my office, and then I can sit down at my desk and sing You Make Me Feel Like it. No, sorry, I can get on with uh, writing my stuff, yeah. Well, let's move on to your good luck charm. I really love this object. It's my old person's bus pass. Yes, that's probably not the PC way of calling it. I think it's called a freedom pass, actually, which I very much like. So from the London borough of Haringey, who have given me a, a bus pass, and it is wonderful. I just feel it is precisely that. It just gives you the freedom to know that you can travel anywhere in this greater London area, and it does feel like a passport. It's just wonderful. And it's not so much the cost of it, actually. It's just the sense that you have that... How can I put it? That the the entity that is... Haringey and London has said, well, you've reached a certain stage in life where we think that it's valuable that you travel about. So maybe I'm over-interpreting it. But there is a sense that, you know, whether you've got to go to the hospital or whether I've got to go right the way across London for something, that somehow or other all I've got to do is just flick this thing and I don't have to worry about, you know, yet another thing to worry about, filling in forms and getting you know, going to cash points and getting money and doing this, all those sort of fiddly things that somehow I've just got this little purple folder in my wallet and I don't think, ah, oh, I won't be able to get on that bus because I haven't got my my money or I haven't brought my cash card or something. So I've just got this freedom pass. So it feels like, yes, it feels like a statement of love that society has given me. And given that um, I do also have a, a completely opposite feeling that certainly with COVID that... There was a brief moment when they thought that old people were kind of dispensable, that we were, well, if we died, well, so be it. You've had a good run. You've had a good innings. And this feeling did exist, and I've actually mentioned it in one one of the poems in the book, when a woman said to me, you know, she was reveling in the idea that those of us who had long COVID had exaggerated what we had, and maybe we weren't ill anyway. And I said, yes, I made it all up. I was hiding under the table. She got the irony and said, no, 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 Michael, no, 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 yeah, you were ill, but um, but you are 74. And I thought, wow, that but is doing some real heavy loading here. What is but about being 74? It's and you're 74, or hooray, you're 74, or great, 74, you can tell us about some things that happened in your life that might be interesting. But no, but you're 74. In other words, but you're on the scrap heap, so if you die... You deserve to die because you've done it. So that seems to me very, very different from society, thank you very much, giving me a freedom pass. It seems to me they're diametrically opposed, those two views. Thinking about your sense of self, now you've come through such an unbelievably traumatic experience. I I love the Mr Man you invented called Mr Kvetch, um, who... Kvetches about everything, moans about everything. And you talk about not wanting to turn into Mr Kvetch. And I wondered if, when you were recovering, when you got moved to the rehab, because I can't imagine you without you writing and being creative and being open and wanting to engage others, did you feel that that sense of self had gone? Did you feel, you know, like you're talking about your body being kind of you're stripped back to just your body did you feel like your mind like your sense of self had disappeared as well and that that took time to regain yes 
Yes, you've said that sort of more articulately than I've said it to myself. I think I tried to touch on it in one poem where I say something about how I used to be certain and how I used to try to get things in the right order. I have a little bit of a laugh about the fact that me and my brother sort of argue about, well, were we in Devon that year or were we in, were we in North Yorkshire? What year was that? And we sit and have those conversations, me and my brother. And a sense in which all that chronology stuff had got completely disrupted. But I suppose another way of thinking about it was that my core sense of self had dissipated, that I, I had become this new person... I wasn't ready for it. It wasn't something that I kind of could have predicted because I hadn't, as it were, gone off and had a big op and then it was different. So it was a bit like having had a big accident or having had a stroke or something like that. And yet I couldn't quite put my finger on it, what it was. So I couldn't, I didn't have a name for it. Yeah, I know I had COVID, but why did I feel so weak? And why did I not remember anything? And why did I not understand things? And why was I getting the chronology all muddled? And why was I in this place, a rehab hospital, trying to learn how to walk? I mean, you know, or, or throw a balloon. There was wonderful Ashma saying, Michael, can you throw a balloon? No, I can't throw a balloon. Look at me, I'm trying to throw a balloon. And it was too hard, it was too heavy. A balloon was too heavy. <laughs> it's not that I've got it back, but I've got quite a strong sense of who I am now and it is different from who I was before in sort of subtle ways just feels like from the inside but I've 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 got somebody who I'm I mean I'm I'm quite content now that I have a hearing aid I think I fought it to start off with I felt really quite annoyed that I had a hearing aid and what do you mean turn it up what do you mean it's got a little bobble on it what is the bobble do and I was fighting it wasn't I but now I quite like it I quite like it I make it make tunes and my son plays beatbox on it he <laughs> just wraps his hand over it so it goes wow 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 it's not funny it's not funny no it is actually dad so uh yeah so I'd, I've uh, adapted and accommodated and I'm, I'm all right with it now let's move on to your final object it's an object you really should have thrown out this is quite absurd I've, I've already mentioned Germany. Well, one of the things we bought as a kid in Germany, they're very common in Germany and Switzerland and Austria, I think. They're little money boxes. And the money box is basically a cube that's about as big as your hand. And in one side of it, there's a little drawer. You pull the drawer out. You put the money in a, a round with coins. You put a coin into a sort of round hole, push it in. And then when you pull the drawer out, the money's gone. That's because the floor of the drawer flips down into the box. And then you pull the drawer out, and there it is, you see? So you can put it... And, and as a kid, I just thought this was magic. Why haven't we got these in England? These are brilliant. Mum, Mum, can I have one of these German money boxes? Yeah, yeah, so they bought it for me. Well, the money box fell apart, but I've kept the drawer. Excuse me, you know, why have I kept the drawer? Of the things you can keep in your life, valuable things things of important sentimental value, but I've got the drawer from my old German money box. You know, of course I should throw it out, but can you see me literally going to my box of old treasures that has got various other extraordinary things in, I could say, and that's there alongside things that are, you know, you could see they're sort of quite special and you can see, but there's this little meaningless wooden drawer that you can't even use for anything. <laughs> it's just a drawer with a hole in it with a floor of it drops out weird 
Are you much of a hoarder? Uh, yes, I think so. I've tried to hoard things that I've since lost. I mean, you know, why haven't I got my school rugby shirt? I mean, come on, where did it go? I'm mortified I haven't got that. I haven't got... I went to Oxford University and you had to wear a silly little gown thing. And when I did my finals, I put some graffiti on the back of it. Jeff Chaucer rules. And um, it's gone. Where's it gone? I've lost it. Terrible. So I'm an ineffectual or inconsistent or inefficient hoarder. But I've got a lot of things that it's probably time that I did give away. I mean, I have kept huge numbers of files that I never open. And I don't know, some bit of me thinks that some American university is going to ring up one day and go, hi, have you got files from when you were 23? And I'll go, yes, I've got them right here. And then they're going to be incredibly pleased. But of course, they're not. But anyway, yeah, I have hoarded things that it's time to throw away. Sometimes it's hard to go through them. It's not even necessarily the throwing away that's the problem. It's the going through them and the decision-making. Oh, you've, you've just made me feel ill yes. just to tell me that. <laughs> don't, don't do it. Just leave, yeah. leave the cupboard. Um, do, so I was thinking about how if you got everyone to write a book who'd been in your situation, they would all be completely different from each other, even if they'd been on exactly the same medical journey as you had. And I'm sure at times you felt completely isolated, even from, well, physically isolated from your family and your friends, and then actually sort of spiritually isolated as well, I suppose. Now that a bit of time's gone by and you've written this, do you take comfort from the fact that many other people went through very similar experiences to you? Yes. There's a way in which you can feel very, very, very alone any day, and I still do, sometimes something goes wrong, whatever it might be. Let's say I've got pain in this joint on my left hand and my thumb joint. Well, that's just you and the joint, isn't it? It's like kind of a weird bit of a private conversation you have with this pain. Now, if you multiply that 20, 30 times, that's what it's like coming through one of these illnesses. And so it feels very private and oppressive and the moment you hear somebody saying, oh, actually, yeah, no, I've got that with my right thumb joint. And you go, really? Oh, wow, that's brilliant. You don't mean it's brilliant that they're hurting, but it's just that, oh, thank goodness, I'm not alone with this thing. I mean, it's quite difficult to describe, but you've put your finger on it. You, you feel very alone. I mean, I, I've, I've called it pinball pain. A lot of pain goes round your body. The moment you clear up one pain, you get another one because it, it, it seems to affect your joints in long COVID terms. And it's kind of a, annoying because it's like a sort of background noise, like a sort of pneumatic drill going on that you, do, you don't like. And then, you know, you go to a, a long COVID support group and you find there's loads of people fetching about it. They're all going... Oi, you know, my joints, talk about joints, my joints, they hurt. And I'm thinking, your joints? You talk about your joints, what about my joints? <laughs> you know, and you have this conversation in your mind and then suddenly you feel, oh, right, we're the people who had COVID and we've got the joint ache. Ah, that feels a bit better. Well, finally, I know you've been back to meet some of the people who looked after you, presumably a lot of whom you can't remember looking after you. What is that like? Unbelievable. It, it's... I get overcome. I mean, I, I can say today I met Monique, who's in the book. I haven't seen Monique. Well, I'd say in one respect, I've never seen her. 
because I was unconscious and she looked after me. And it was just wonderful. I mean, I'm looking at somebody who cared for me as if she was my parent. That's what I've tried to say in the book. But they're not my parents. I did, she didn't know me. She's a, a woman who's lived a life that's nothing at all to do with me, a background that's nothing at all like mine. And she's cared that, will I live or not? I mean, come on, that's just incredible. Why should she care? You know, I'm some old white guy that's just lying there, you know, what did... You know, what's what's it matter? But it's just the opposite. She's, she's cared and she's cared enough for me to meet her. And, you know, we started talking. And then there's a, a guy that I've met today who sat and explained to me about the drugs that they've given me. And I could go on. I bumped into somebody while we were actually filming that programme 2020, The Story of Us. She walked by, she came back and she went, it's Michael. And I'm thinking, yeah. And at first I thought she'd recognise me maybe because she's a mum and had seen me doing we're going on a bear hunt or something like that. And she was a nurse who looked after me and she was pleased to see that I'm alive. Well, you know, if you go through life, there are people who care for you, care about you. And obviously there's your intimates in your family. But you don't expect complete strangers to have this powerful relationship with you and they've done all this stuff, all these kind of medical procedures, twiddling around. And, well, Monique told me earlier that they were worried about my blood pressure diving, so it would go down very suddenly. So she was listening to the heartbeat and the blood pressure, you see, on the machine, and so she would wake me up. You think, that's incredible. I mean, at one level, it's professional and it's technique and it's knowledge that clever people have learnt how to do and to know in your heart of hearts, and to listen out for, and to have that experience and training and all that. But another level, it's like, well, if she'd sort of not had that, or even if she had it and maybe wasn't that bothered, well, I'd have just copped it. I'd have died then. I mean, that's overwhelming. I'm, I'm going to get emotional now. It's, it's just incredible for me to think that that's what went on. And I can't bear it that nurses are so poorly paid and that all the health workers and so on, because this is... We invented the national... I say we, but, you know, the human race, British people invented the National Health Service. There's nothing better or finer than caring that we stay alive so that we can be in the world. And we've invented this apparatus and organisation to do it. And people come through it like this, like, like the people I've met... And we should be celebrating. It's, it's a sort of like crown jewel, really, of what we have. And yet here I keep hearing that it's understaffed and there hasn't enough money and that people are overworked and they can't go into work and so on, all these things. So, um, yeah, it becomes overwhelming for me and I want to treasure it and I want to pay tribute to it in any way that I can. Well, you have, you really have, I think, you know, Everyone who reads this book, I can't imagine them not taking so much from it. It's so rich. It's so moving. It's so funny as well. But it is it is such a celebration of the NHS and, and of kindness and of joy. So I just think it's, it's absolutely wonderful. And thank you so much for talking to me today. Well, thank you, Izzy. Thank you. You're welcome. 
thank you to the listeners for listening and as always we'll be back soon with another fantastic author and a handful of their treasured objects don't forget to subscribe please to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode and you can leave us a review of course and help us get the word out and finally if you want to find out more about this podcast or michael's work go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts i'm izzy sutty and i will see you next time (laughs) 